please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 13 as we continue making our way through the Gospel of Luke. And as you turn there, let me just uh, extend a special invitation to those of you who are uh, more new to our church and perhaps those of you who've come in the last few months and are considering making uh, Bethany community your church home. We'd encourage you to, to come to Bethany 101. Bethany 101 is the, the class that we offer on Sunday mornings, two Sunday mornings, uh, next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, and then the following Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, and we'll meet here in this room, kind of here at the front, and it's just an introduction to the church, and it helps you find out more about what we believe, and, and even if you're not considering making uh, Bethany your church home, uh, perhaps you'd like to find out more about the church, and we'd love to have you attend that as well, and maybe uh, you can you can just show up next week, or you can also... Uh, Send us an email or something. Let us know that you're coming. We'd love to, to uh, have you for that class. Bethany 101, meeting next Sunday and the following Sunday here in this room. Well, uh, if you'd stand with me now in honor of God's Word as we look at Luke chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 9 this morning, but I'm going to start a few verses earlier and begin reading from verse 1 of Luke chapter 13. Luke writes, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you also likewise will perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. You may be seated and be encouraged through God's word this morning. Let's, let's pray that God would continue to bless our time of worship this morning as we turn our attention to the gospel of Luke. Heavenly Father, we do pray for our, our time together this morning. We pray for hearts of repentance and faith toward you, hearts that don't cling to this earth, to the ground, to the things that are are temporary and transient. We pray that our hearts would be seeking you, those things that are eternal, those things that will matter for eternity, your glory and the relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And We pray for your grace in our lives, and we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul tells a a humorous story about his second year as a professor. He was teaching an introduction to the Old Testament to 250 freshman students. And these 250 freshman students came in on the first day of class and, and sat down, and he passed out a syllabus. And then he proceeded to walk through the syllabus with these freshman students very carefully. He said, you'll notice in the syllabus that there are three term papers that you are to write for this class. The first term paper is due September 30th. The second term paper is due October 30th. 
and the final term paper is due November the 30th. Do not even think about trying to turn in these term papers late. They are due the day that they are due, and if you are ill in the hospital or you've had an immediate death in the family, only under those circumstances will I accept a late paper. Do you all understand me, he said, and 250 freshman students said, yes, professor, we understand what you're telling us. Well, you can imagine what happened. September 30th rolls around, and Dr. Sproul asks for the papers, and he finds that of the 250 students, 25 did not have their papers ready. Oh, Dr. Sproul, they told him. We, we were ready, but, but we didn't understand how hard college was and the transition from being a, a senior in high school to a freshman in college. We just had no idea how stressful this was. Please grant us mercy. And Professor Sproul said, you understood what I told you, right? Yes, we understood. We just didn't do it. Please, mercy. Okay, he said. He told the class, I'm going to give these students three extra days to turn in these papers. Well, you're wonderful, Dr. Sproul. Wonderful, wonderful. October 30th comes by. This time, 50 students don't have their papers ready. Oh, Dr. Sproul, we, we thought we were going to have them, but midterms are coming, and it was homecoming week, and, and he said, look, I told you guys the first day, I told you no more late-term papers. Please, Dr. Sproul, please. We are unworthy. Just please give us this mercy. He goes, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you an extension. I'm going to give you a three-day extension on these papers. He says that the students began spontaneously singing a song in praise of him, and he said, I was the most popular professor on campus that week. Well, you can imagine what happened on November 30th. The third term paper is due, and a hundred students have the paper ready, and 150 do not. <laughs> he, wa- he says that he watches them walk in as, as cool as can be and sit down, and he calls out the names, Johnson, where's your paper? Oh, Prof, I don't have it. I'll get it to you in a couple days. Really? Yeah, don't worry about it. He says he pulls out his little black grade book and says, Johnson, F, writes down an F. Fitzgerald, where's your paper? Uh, F, Jenkins, uh, F. He said there was a cry in the room. That's not fair. Wait, wait, what's going on? And several people kind of upset about what he's doing here. He says, wait a minute. Do you want justice? Do you want fairness? If you want fairness, Fitzgerald, did you turn in your first paper? No. Fine. F for that as well. As he's talking about this event, he, he summarizes with these words. He said, There is a song in the musical My Fair Lady titled, I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face. Well, those students had grown accustomed to my grace. The first time they were late with their papers, they were amazed by grace. The second time, they were no longer surprised. They basically assumed it. By the third time, they demanded it. They had come to believe that grace was an inalienable right, an entitlement they all deserved. I think that's a great illustration, isn't it, of our relationship to God and and his grace and and his mercy. There's kind of two truths that come through in that story. The first truth is that that God is a merciful and a gracious God. 
God bestows his mercy upon us, his, his grace upon us, and, and allows us time to be reconciled to him, to, to have a right relationship with him. That's, that's a truth in Scripture that comes through, I think, in that story. But the second truth is this. You and I are presumptuous. We believe that God somehow owes us mercy. In fact, the, the very idea of demanding mercy means that a person doesn't understand what mercy is. It's God's undeserved grace and favor toward us. Last week, if you're here, you remember that we looked at verses 1 through 5 of Luke chapter 13. And as we were looking at verses 1 through 5, we saw Jesus interacting with these people who told him about this tragedy that had befallen these Galileans. And there was an assumption that these Galileans were somehow more wicked than other people, and that's perhaps why they suffered in this, this way. And Jesus talks about the fate of the people who the, the tower fell on, and, and there's an assumption perhaps that perhaps these people who the tower fell on were more wicked than other people. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. But the point is, as we've just been talking, Jesus is saying, as we, I've just been talking to you about the imminent arrival of God and his judgment and the necessity to be, be ready, the point is when you see tragedy, when you come into contact with the reality that life is finite, there's a finite amount of time that God has provided us to get right with him, when you see that reality, your response should be what? Your response should be a response of repentance. Wow, my life is short. I haven't gotten things right with God, and therefore, whatever I've been doing, I need to no longer be doing that and instead turn to faith in God and, and be reconciled to God and get this relationship right with God while there's still an opportunity to do so. And what could have happened as Jesus said those words and used that tragedy as an illustration of the need to get right with God, what could have happened is some of his audience heard him say that and said, yeah, that's, that's a good point. People should really repent. Yeah. I hope, I hope my friend over there is listening to that. Or maybe last week as we talked about repentance, you're sitting there and you're, you're hearing the need to see tragic events as a reminder to repent, and you're looking at that guy two rows in front of you. Man, I hope he's listening because I've, I've heard some things about his life, and I hope he's really repentant. Or, you know, you take really good notes. You can talk to them later with your spouse, because you're pretty sure there's some areas that your spouse needs to work on. What Jesus is doing, right after telling that, that, uh, those truths about the need to look at tragic circumstances as an opportunity to repent, he now tells this parable. And what this parable tells us is that if a person is repentant, there are some fruits that we should see in their life that show that their heart has been repentant. In fact, let me just take a, a moment and talk to you a little bit about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and repentance and its relationship to, to works and fruit. A person, a person comes into relationship with God through faith alone. There are no works, there's, there's nothing that we do that we can present to God and say, God, on the basis of, of this, you should accept me. You can't say, when you get to heaven, God, uh, I was really nice to old people, and I think on the basis of my niceness to old people, I know I did some things wrong, let's, let's call it even, and let's enjoy eternity together. Or, you know, I bought Girl Scout cookies from every Girl Scout that, that came to my door. Um, that's, 
that was probably gluttony more than niceness. But, uh, you know, I've done, I've done a lot of nice things, God. The Bible tells us that our good works are like filthy rags. They're, they're not acceptable to God. What a person does in order to reconcile themselves to God, to have that relationship with God restored that's, that's been damaged and caused separation through sin, what a person does is they place their faith alone in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it's by grace we've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. The only way that we get reconciled to God is through placing our faith in, in Jesus Christ alone on the basis of his death and resurrection for our sins. You say, well, then how does repentance fit into all that? Repentance is part of that act of faith. In fact, you can kind of think of this the Repentance is the other side of, the, of, of faith. Faith is one side of the coin and repentance is the other. I've used this illustration before, but imagine that you're falling into the ocean. And as you fall into the ocean, you're holding this, this large rock. And this large rock, as you fall into the ocean, is causing you to sink more and more and more. And, and you see this life preserver that is, is cast. And as, in order to grab a hold of that life preserver, what do you have to do? You have to let go of what's causing you to continue to sink and you cling to that life preserver. That's repentance. As you place your faith in Jesus Christ, what you're doing at the same time is turning away from your sins. Now, that doesn't mean that you're changing your life before you place your faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you're, you're getting your life totally in order, and that's repentance, and then you place your faith in Jesus Christ. What it means is as you see your sin for what it is, sin, things that displease God, you say, I no longer want to live this way. I, I understand that this, this activity that I've been involved in is wrong. This lifestyle I've been living is wrong. And I, I want to instead turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And as you make that decision, you're repenting and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That's repentance. Now, as you repent, as a person repents and places their faith in Jesus Christ, They've been reconciled to God. They've entered into a new relationship with God. They've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have a new life and are called to live a new life. But, and, a person who has repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ and received this new heart should now bear fruit in keeping with that new life. A person whose heart has been transformed by the gospel should indicate that their heart has been transformed by the gospel by some fruit that comes out of their life, the fruit of repentance. Is that fruit what saves them? Absolutely not. But what we see here in this parable that Jesus tells is that, look, if it's true that you've repented, if it's true that you have become reconciled to God, then there are some things that should be true of your life. There's some fruit that should exist as a result of a transformed heart. Here's kind of what I believe is, is the main point of this parable. Here's what I believe is the main point that Jesus is trying to communicate here in verses 6 through 9. God patiently provides time for us to repent and produce the fruit of repentance. God patiently provides us time to repent and produce the fruit of repentance. 
I thought about saying uh, God patiently provides us time to produce produce, but that sounded a little confusing. Uh, but it would have been an extra P. Um, but God patiently provides us time to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, doesn't he? Here's a couple things that I, I hope happen as we meditate on this parable and as we meditate upon these, these truths. Now, first of all, I hope that it causes self-examination. I hope that each of us, as we think about this reality that God is providing us patiently, this time to produce spiritual fruit, to repent and produce spiritual fruit, I hope, first of all, it causes us to examine our own hearts, examine our lives, and see if, if repentance has been true of us. I also hope that it helps us gain a, a love for a, our, our patient God. I hope as you consider the truth that God is patient toward you, it, it fills you with a sense of, of greater love and devotion toward him. And I also hope what happens as we think about God's patience towards us is I hope that you and I gain and increase our patience with others, that we exhibit the same grace toward others that our God has exhibited toward us in his patience. So here's uh, three kind of should statements that I want us to consider as we think about this truth that God has patiently provided us time to repent and produce the, the fruits of repentance. The, the first should statement that I want us to think about is this, uh, you should be producing fruit. You should be producing fruit. Uh, look at the text here in verse 6, what does Jesus say? He's just talked about this need for repentance. He says in verse 6, and he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. In other words, there's this guy who plants a fig tree in a vineyard in this fruit garden. That would have been a very common thing in this culture. Fig trees were very common in the area. A fig tree might grow some 20 feet wide, 20, 25 feet high, and putting it in a fruit garden or in a vineyard would have been a great place to put it, very common, because the person who's tending to the garden can also tend to this, this fig tree. And so this man places this fig tree in this good location, and the expectation that he would have for this fig tree, because it's in a good climate, good area, someone's taking care of it, the obvious expectation that he would have for this fig tree would be that it would produce fruit. I believe that this fig tree is representative of the Jewish nation or the individuals that make up the Jewish nation here at the time, the, the Jewish people. God, throughout Scripture, sometimes refers to the Jewish people or uses fig trees and illustrations with the, the Jewish people. He would, in Isaiah chapter 5, use a similar picture to describe the, the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, had been given the setting in which they should have responded to, in repentance when they came into contact with the Messiah. Remember in Romans chapter 9, as, as the apostle Paul is talking about the people of Israel and how his desires that the people of Israel would respond in repentance, in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, he, he's talking about how they, they should have responded to Jesus Christ. He says, look, look, they're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption and the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In other words, he's saying, look, these people should have responded in repentance. They had God's revelation. They had the patriarchs, the father of the faith, 
faith Abraham. These are the people that had all the advantages that you would need in order to respond to the Messiah. And the expectation would have been that when the Messiah appears, these people who have received God's special promises, his law, his divine revelation, the expectation would have been whenever the Messiah comes and they see the Messiah, they would have repented. And as they would have repented, they would have born fruit of repentance. But what's happened? The Messiah has shown up and people haven't responded with repentance at all. And how do we know that they haven't responded with repentance? Because there's no fruit. In fact, keep your finger there, if you would, in Luke chapter 13, and turn back to Luke chapter 3. You would have expected, as you looked at the nation of Israel when the Messiah came, you would have expected to find fruit. You know that feeling you have whenever you've, you've placed something somewhere and you, you go back and you, you look for it and it, it's not there? You expect to find something in a place and you look and it's just, it's just not there. I, I do that with, with pins all the time. I, I place a pin on a table and, and, and it's gone. I do it with children. Um, I, place, I place a child in the bed at night and, and I, I go back and I expect to find the child there and, and, and they're gone. Our, our youngest does this especially. She'll, I'll, I'll go in and look on the bed and, and uh, there's lots of stuffed animals. And after I've kissed every stuffed animal thinking it's her, uh, I look around and she's on the floor, she's in the closet, she's in her sister's bed. You, you, you go someplace and you expect to find something where you've left it, something where something should logically be. A child should logically be in a bed. Fruit should have logically been the lives of these people who had responded to the Messiah, but there was no fruit. We saw this, a similar idea here in Luke chapter 3, similar ideas as John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. And in John chapter, or sorry, Luke chapter 3, John is, is talking to the crowds, verse 7, and as all these crowds come out to him, you would have expected him to say, wow, this is so awesome to have so many people out here. They must be really excited about the Messiah. Uh, John the Baptist is not a seeker-sensitive dude. Listen to what he says. He says uh, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you bunch of snakes, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, you can imagine you come in here on a Sunday morning, and I say, hey, you, you, you big house of snakes, who warned you to come to Bethany Community Church? I probably wouldn't go over very well with some of you, right? John the Baptist is, is trying to kind of try get their attention and let them know, look, just coming here and being around this teaching isn't sufficient to get you right with God. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, and here's this picture again that we see in Luke 13, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so he said, look, if, if you truly want to demonstrate repentance, we need to see fruit that shows that you have a repentant heart. And the people go, well, what do you mean, John? He says, well, let me tell you. The crowds say to him, what do we need to do? What, is, what does the fruit of repentance look like in our life? And what does John say? He says, look, if you have two tunics, share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Verse 12, the tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said, well, teacher, what shall we do? What does repentance look like for us? And he said to them, 
uh, collect no more, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and, and be content with your wages. In other words, over and over again, what he's saying here is you need to produce the fruit that indicates that your heart has been repentant. Now, what does repentance look like for us? What should we see? What are some things that should be true in our hearts as we think about our own repentance? Let me tell you a couple, but before I do, let me read a, a quote from a man named Don Whitney. And Don Whitney warns against something called legalism. And as we talk about fruit, sometimes we can fall into the trap of legalism. So I want to, before we talk about the fruit that should be true in our lives, let me, let me just caution you against legalism. Here's what Don Whitney writes. He says, legalism is the improper emphasis on works in our relationship with God. Legalism focuses on the manifestations of spirituality that can be measured by number, frequency, duration, amount, and so forth. No one has the authority to force upon themselves or anyone else external measurements of spirituality that have no scriptural basis. You see what he's saying there? Oftentimes, as we begin talking about the fruit that should be true in our lives, we can slip into legalism. And we can say, the reason that I am right with God is because I do such and such. I am reading through the Bible this year, and God looks at me reading through the Bible and finds me acceptable on the basis of my reading the Bible. Or I pray for X number of minutes a day, and because I pray for X number of minutes a day, I really love God, and because I do that, God looks at me with favor because of my work. That's legalism. The legalist can say, I'm right with God, you're not, because I do such and such. The caution here is that our fruit always comes from faith. God divinely working through us to allow us to do the things that we are able to do by his grace. We find comfort in the things that we're doing, not because of the things, but because that they're, they're fruit representing a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. I hope that distinction makes sense as we talk here about some things that we should see in our hearts, in our lives. This, a couple months ago, my father-in-law came up to visit and worked on a couple projects with the kids and, 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 and me. Um, and, you know, transparency here, I'm not the most handy of people. If you don't believe me, you can, you can ask uh, Pastor Kent. Uh, Pastor Kent came over to my house uh, yesterday, and I, I told my children, I said, look, you need to come watch this man help me with a couple things because everything you've seen me do apparently is terribly, terribly wrong. And I want, you know, by God's grace, hopefully you forget everything you saw me do over the last few days and just remember what Pastor Kent is doing. Uh, so my father-in-law came, and he would he would ask me to get him a tool. And I know the basic tools, but he'd ask me some obscure name for something, like a blah, blah, blah saw. And uh, do you have that? And I kept on trying to think of creative ways to say, I don't know. Um, like, I'd go, hmm, I, let me think about that. Google, what's that? Uh, you know, 
So I'm just constantly trying to find uh, ways to say I don't know without just giving, I don't know, I don't know. It just got really old, I think, for both of us. And, you know, I could hear him crying in his room at night. Who did my daughter marry? So as we, I didn't know the names for all these things. And sometimes as we look at it in our heart, we say, okay, what am I looking for? What is this exactly supposed to look like? And, and there's many, many things that we could talk about, many fruits that we should see and be able to recognize in our life. Let me just give you a couple. Let me just give you a couple things that you should be looking for as you think about spiritual fruit. I'm going to give you seven here, seven things that are just, exa- these are just examples. This is an exhaustive list, just some examples of some things that should be true if you're bearing spiritual fruit, and you should be producing spiritual fruit. One thing is there should be the fruit of repentance in your, in your life. In 2 Corinthians, the fruit of repentance, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11, describe this in more detail. Paul says in, in verse 11, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation. These, these are all things that come from a person who's repentant over sin, relational sin between them and someone else. There's, there's earnestness. There's this eagerness to clear oneself. There's indignation. There's fear, he says. There's longing to restore relationship. There's, there's zeal in pursuing righteousness. There's, there's punishment. In other words, putting things in place to, to not continue in sin. And so one thing that I should see that true in my life, if I'm growing in, the, in grace and I'm bearing spiritual fruit, I should see that the fruits of repentance that Paul describes here in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. A second thing that spiritual fruit, an example of spiritual fruit that I should see is the fruit of the Spirit, right? What's the fruit of the Spirit we see in Galatians? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are things that we should see in increasing measure in our lives if we've been transformed by the gospel. Another spiritual fruit is I should see in my life a, a greater obedience to God's commandments, shouldn't I? John says in 1 John 2, verse 4, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. And so this morning, if you say, you know what, Uh, I know that things are are right with me and God. And I ask you, well, tell me about your obedience to God's commandments. And you go, eh. I said, well, eh, does that bother you? Eh. Look, a person who loves God is walking in his commandments, and, and if he or she is not doing so, there's, there's grief about it. There's, boy, I know that I'm not doing what I need to do, and there's an increasing desire to do what God has called us to do if a person has truly experienced the life-transforming power of the gospel. Another example of the fruit of, of a right relationship with God is a love for other believers. Number four, a love for other believers. What does John also say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14? He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. He'll say much the same thing in, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. So he says, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so this morning, if I ask you, well, tell me about your relationship with with the other people in this church. Do you you have a love for them and a a desire to serve them and and see them grow in their walk with the Lord? And again, you say, kind of, sort of, actually, they kind of drive me nuts. And I I don't like them very much at all. Look, that should be concerning. A spiritual fruit that should be being produced in your heart is a greater love for brothers and sisters in Christ. A person who doesn't love their brothers and sisters in Christ doesn't know God. Their heart hasn't been transformed by the gospel. Another fruit is a love of sound teaching. Again, 1 John says this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. First John chapter 4, verse 6 says, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so in other words, a person who has the spirit of God residing in them loves sound teaching. They love God's word. They, they have a desire to, to know it and to grow deeper in it and to know it more fully and to see it applied in their lives. And if that's not true of you, that's a spiritual fruit that is missing. All these are examples of, of spiritual fruit that should be being produced in the believer's life. There should also be a long-term growth in God's grace. That's another example of, of fruit, a, a long-term growth in God's grace. In other words, you're seeing this increased discipline. Hebrews 12, verses 7 and 9, 7 through 9 talk about that. And then finally, a seventh fruit, just an example here this morning, a seventh example of spiritual fruit in one's life is that one should be engaged in ministering to others. One should be engaged in ministering to others. First Peter 4, verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. A person comes to the church, and it's just like this fig tree here, a dead fig tree. All, it's doing, all the person's doing is, is taking up ground in the church. A person who's alive, whose heart has been transformed by the gospel, is, is producing fruit in the lives of other people and using the spiritual gifts that God has imparted to them to serve the other people. The vine dresser, the, the owner of this fig tree, comes and expects fruit. A plant, a fig tree, should be producing produce. It should be doing something. The believer, the man or woman, child, who's been transformed by the gospel, should be producing fruit. And these are some examples of what it looks like. Here's the second should that we see in the text. You should find a lack of fruit alarming. You should find a lack of fruit alarming. Here's what happens next in the parable in verse 7. This owner of the fig tree says to the vine dresser, and this would have been the person that's in charge of taking care of the, the fig tree and this, this, this property. He says, look, for, for three years now, for three years now, I've, I've come seeking fruit in this fig tree. And probably what's happened is the fig tree would have taken three years to reach maturity. And then for the last three years, the 
owner has been coming saying, okay, is this the year? No. He comes the second year. Is this the year? No. It's been five years now. And he comes the sixth year. Is this the year? No. What is the deal with this fig tree? I, I, I still find no fruit. Therefore, he says, cut it down. Deal with it. Why should it continue to use up ground? He expects to find fruit from this fig tree, continues to not find fruit, and so he reaches a reasonable conclusion. It's time to get rid of this thing. All this thing does is take up valuable real estate and robs nutrients from other plants in this fruit garden. Here's what I think Jesus is saying on the basis of what he's been saying at the end of chapter 12 and at the beginning of chapter 13. What he's saying is, it is a legitimate conclusion for God to come to that it's time to judge Israel for its lack of reception of him as the Messiah. There should have been the fruit of repentance and this failure to respond to Jesus, this failure to respond to the gospel, indicates that it is legitimate for Israel to suffer God's divine displeasure. Again, Again, if a person has been transformed by the gospel, responded to the good news of Jesus Christ, and turned, fruit should be the response. Let me give you a couple passages that indicate this reality. Psalm chapter 1, verse 3, the psalmist says, The righteous person is like a, a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, is he prospers. First John 2.29, if you know that he's righteous, you may sure, be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born in him. And so the reality is that a person who's a believer should be producing fruit. And a person that looks at their life and doesn't see the fruit that should be being produced should find that very concerning. Why? Because judgment awaits those whose lives have been characterized by a lack of spiritual fruit, by the presence of wickedness. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark, uh, let's see, sorry, I have the wrong uh, passage there. Sometimes I go a little bit ahead of my notes, and so I'm, uh, I'm a little off script here. And that's great, except when I can't remember a Bible passage in my head. But here's, uh, here's a good passage. <laughs> it is in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 says this, uh, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, these are, these are sins, these are attitudes, these are fruit that should not be present in the believer's life. You say, well, look, all those things are, or some of those things are true of me. What, what does that mean? Well, it means you should find that alarming. 
those things have, have no place in the life of the believer. And a person that finds those things in their life needs to, needs to understand, look, I understand that God's judgment comes upon those people who practice these type of things, whose, whose lives are characterized by this. And the, the assumption of the gospel, the assumption of the, of the apostolic writers here is that a person who's been washed, who's been sanctified, who's been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus is no longer like that. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, and listen, these words are hard, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, wait, Dan, are you saying that a person has to be perfect to enter heaven? No, but I am saying take the words of the Apostle Paul here very seriously. A person whose life is not characterized by spiritual fruit, but a, life, a person whose life is characterized by the works of the flesh is a person who needs to be very alarmed and possibly come to the conclusion, I, I don't have a heart of faith. I haven't been transformed. I haven't repented and placed my faith in Jesus Christ for my salvation. My life continues to be manifested with these characteristics of the flesh. And Paul says, I, I warn you, those who do such things, those whose lives are characterized by this behavior, don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Here's the point. As you think about the lack of fruit in your life, it should be like an alarm going off warning you, wait a minute, this is dangerous. This isn't the way that I'm supposed to be. There's something terribly wrong here. And here, as the owner of this fig tree comes to the fig tree and doesn't find any produce on it, there's alarms going off. I'm going to cut this thing down. A few years ago, Whitney sent the kids down to the basement to play and they were gone for quite a while playing, and she heard sounds like, as, in fact, as she, I think she said as she noticed as they went down, they seemed, as they got to the bottom of the stairs, they seemed more excited than normal about playing in the basement, and she hears them just having a good old time, and then uh, they come up from the basement, and she notices that they're soaking wet, and apparently the basement was flooded. And they just thought that was the greatest surprise ever. Hey, cool, it's a swimming pool. And so they're, they're playing around in the, in the water. We had no alarm system at the time. So we bought this you know, little $15 alarm thing that, that tells us uh, when the sump pump goes out and the water starts to go up, right? Beep, 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 beep. It's an alarm. Something's wrong. We need to fix it. And so all the kids have been trained. Whenever you hear that beeping sound, let us know. It's, it's not free pool time. It's, it's warning. Right? Whenever you and I see our lives characterized by the, by the works of the flesh, there's like, well, ding, 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 ding. Something's wrong here. This isn't how these things are supposed to be. A fig tree is supposed to produce figs. A person who's repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ is supposed to produce spiritual fruit. And when I see that lacking in my life, when I, I see, I, man, I don't love other believers. I'm not involved in ministry. I'm not engaged in studying God's Word. I, in fact, my heart, as I look at my heart, I have no desire for those things. Ding, 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 alarm, 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 warning. There should be a sense of grave concern 
when we see those things lacking in our lives. Here's the third should that I want us to think about this morning. You should take advantage of God's mercy and patience towards you. Verse 8 says, and he answered him, sir, let it alone. This is the vine dresser. He says, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and, and put on manure, and then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. And, and what's taking place here? Some people have said, well, maybe the, maybe the owner of the fig tree represents God the Father, and the vine dresser represents uh, God the Son, and I don't think that's what's taking place here. It's not like God the Father and God the Son are like a mom and dad arguing about how much discipline to give. And, you know, mom's like, oh, come on, let's go easy. And, and, you know, dad's like, let's, you know, let's ground him for life. And God the Father's like, yeah, let's cut him down. And God the Son goes, no, come on, let's just be, no, that's not how it works, right? God the Father and God the Son are in perfect unity. What I think is represented here are different aspects of of God's character. And we see in this this parable that, that it's right for God to deal with sin. It's just, but we also see in the character of the vine dresser, we see the the patience of God. God is a a patient and a loving God who continues and continues and continues to extend grace and continues to extend mercy and continues to extend love and says, look, there's there's time, there's time, there's time. Let's repent and, and produce fruit. Let's do what God has designed us to do and glorify his name. How much time do we have? I don't know. What we have is right now, the second. What we have till the end of the day, I can't guarantee that. But God in his grace and his mercy has given us this moment and continues to be patient with us. And the vine dresser is saying, look, let's give it some more time so that it can bear this fruit. God in his grace has given you this moment, this time, to allow you to look at the reality of, a, of tragedy around you, the reality of living in a fallen world, the reality of, of living in a, a world that's going to someday face God's judgment. And in his love and in his mercy, he said, a little more time, a little more time, let's extend it a little more and, and allow people to turn to me and produce the fruit in keeping with repentance. 